It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, we've got uh, a pretty interesting three-hour tour for you this uh, this morning. It uh, is a special day in many ways. We're, of course, uh, remembering the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, and we'll pay tribute to that a little later in the show. This would also have been... Betty White's 100th birthday today, and we're going to have a little hat tip to that. Plus, this will be uh, kind of interesting uh, to people from this area, especially uh, Flint rock and roll legend Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad fame is uh, playing later this month. Uh, He'll be back at the Capitol Theater in downtown Flint with uh, his American band. And uh, he was on the show a couple of years ago. He'd been on the show several times, but he was on the show a couple of years ago talking about his 50th anniversary tour. And we're going to replay that uh, in honor of his uh, coming back to the Capitol a little later in today's show. We're also going to be talking with, um, uh, this is uh, interesting, we're going to be talking with the author of a new book, uh, Howard French is um, from Columbia University, and he has a new book called Born in Blackness, Africa's Influence on European Expansion and Global Development. We'll talk about that and uh, more with uh, Howard coming up in just a little bit. But first, this uh, first hour, we're going to talk about um, actually a couple of phrases that are new to me and may be new to you, but are part of a new book from uh, New York University professor Natasha Iskander. Um, those phrases are World Cup slaves and uh, the politics of skill classifications. She has a new book. It's called uh, Skill Make Us Human. And she joins me by phone. Natasha, good morning and welcome to the show. And she just dropped the call. Well, maybe she'll... Yep, there she is. Let's try this again. Hi, Natasha. Hello, Natasha. Now, I'm not hearing her voice for some reason. We're having a little trouble with the phone line. Maybe she'll drop it and call again. And maybe the third time will be the charm. But, uh, again, it's uh, Natasha Iskander, um, a professor from uh, New York University. The name of the book is Does Skill Make Us Human? 
about migrant workers in 21st century Qatar and beyond. Let's try this. Let's try this one more time. And hopefully joining me by phone now is uh, Natasha. Good morning, Natasha. Welcome to the show. And again, we have no audio. I don't know what's, uh, what's going on here, but, um, well, we may have to... Uh, now we may have to reschedule this interview with Natasha, unfortunately. Um, the phone has been working uh, this morning, so I don't know what uh, what the deal is. But tell you what, maybe let's go to... Um, let's go to uh, an, another Encore. We'll, uh, we'll slide an Encore interview in here. Um, as we do from time to time. Welcome to live radio, folks. And uh, my thanks and apologies to Natasha Iskander for a valiant effort, but sometimes when technology is messing up, there's really not much you can do. So we'll go instead to uh, another interview pulled from the archives of the big broadcast here and, uh, and call it good, I guess. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We uh, shift gears this hour and uh, talk about race. Most kids of color grow up talking about racism. They have, quote, the talk with their families uh, about survival in a racist world. But white kids don't. They're barely spoken to about race at all, and that needs to change. So says uh, New York Times best-selling author and the author of a new book called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege, by Brendan Kiley, who joins me by phone. Hi, Brendan. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, Brendan, let's, let's talk about this, um, because you're absolutely right. White kids don't get a talk about racism or or how to behave um, unless uh, the subject of race comes up and basically all we ever hear is don't be a racist and so right. people run around thinking well I'm not a racist that's a lot different than being anti-racist right right no I appreciate that you know so many of my friends of color and uh, as you mentioned uh, in the intro uh, grow up having the talk and um, I think many people are, you know, whether you're a, a, a person who's indigenous or you're, um, you grew up in a black family or you grew up in a, in a, in a family um, of, of any other uh, cultural background from the global majority, I think you're, you're, you're familiar with that. But so, too, I think are, are, are folks who grew up in white families, they're familiar with the talk in that context, but they recognize that they don't have the same kind of talk when they're growing up. Now, for me, for example... I, I grew up in a family, I'm a, I'm a white man, I grew up in a family that, um, that spoke about racism, and we spoke about, just as you're saying, you know, you shouldn't be a racist, but never did we really speak about what it meant for me 
to grow up as a white person. In other words, never did I ever have a talk about how my racial identity impacts my life and impacts the lives of others around them. And as someone who's a, a father now, someone who uh, was an educator for 10 years, um, I know that young people uh, and, and young white people in particular are, are eager to have this conversation. They want to know because they want to learn more so they can do more to help participate in making a more racially just world. Um, Brendan, and you talk about the, the, the subtitle of the book is Reckoning with Our White Privilege. And, I, you know, I think for a lot of people, they hear the phrase white privilege, and, and a lot of white people are not doing very well economically and uh, having a tough time hanging on to their homes. And, and I know there are people out there who hear that phrase and say, what white privilege? I, I don't feel particularly privileged. And so what do we mean when we say and we use that phrase white privilege? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question, Tom, because uh, to be honest, I, I struggle with that word, too. It um, implies like like born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Yep, and, yep. And that's not necessarily the case, and yet still it exists. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a tricky word, and, and honestly, I use it in the book because it's it's kind of common <laughs> parlance of our times, you know. And, well, and, it's part of the lexicon. And, Exactly, and I and I and I uh, and I and I use it so that people understand where where I'm going in the book. However, I agree with you um, that that people you know trip over that word, especially people who are who are struggling and having hard times. It's like but, Wall but, Street guys who say the economy is doing well, and I feel like saying not in my neighborhood. It, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, I understand that very well. And I, and you know, for me, I, I think it's uh, I I, um, I appreciate the poet and scholar Claudia Rankin who uh, chooses to use a different phrase, which may also be a little uncomfortable, but I, I, I want to give it some context here. She, she, too, says you know she doesn't want to use the phrase white privilege, but she does maybe want to call it white living, or, in other words, what it means to live as a white person in our country. And that does actually bear some, um, some exploration, because what we mean when we're talking about white privilege is that though we may not support this, that we may not want this, that we might not have done anything to create this, those of us who are white still walk around with advantages all the time that many folks of color don't share. I'll give you a for instance. Um, I, uh, I, I co-wrote a novel with a friend of mine. Um, it's called All American Boys. Um, he's black, I'm white. Um, we were going into a bank in Washington, D.C., and, and um, uh, my friend who's black was there to do uh, his business. And... Um, the, the bank teller said, oh, for the transaction that you're going to do, um, we need to go get the bank manager to approve this. Now, From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Well, that was Brendan and we heard a little bit of uh, an interview that aired a few weeks ago on the show. Seemed appropriate filler as we tried to get back on track with our originally scheduled guest from uh, New York University, uh, Professor Natasha Iskander. And she joins me by phone. I think we've got it this time. Hi, Natasha. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Or I guess it's Natasha. That's right. And it's Iskander. That's, that's what, right. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a little bit of a tongue twister, but but welcome and and thanks for being here. And I mentioned in the uh, the uh, very beginning of the show about ten minutes ago that uh, we were going to talk about a couple of terms that I hadn't heard before, and uh, I I want to talk about what those things mean. We've got a couple of minutes before the first break, so let me let me just uh, lay those out and see if we can. Uh, um, parse those a little bit. World Cup slaves and the politics of skill classifications. So let me start with the first one. Okay. Uh, so the World Cup, which is the global tournament for soccer, is uh, being launched this November, uh, November 21st to be exact, in Qatar, in, in its capital, Doha. And Qatar is a country uh, appended to Saudi Arabia in the Persian Gulf. It's a small country of about two and a half million people. Ninety-five percent of the workforce in Qatar is immigrant, is foreign. Um, so uh, the, the number of Qataris in Qatar is, is just is pretty small. It's under 10 percent. And Qatar is uh, hosting the World Cup, and its, its hosting rights um, have been somewhat controversial. It won the hosting rights in 2010 and began pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into the construction of the stadia and the infrastructure for the World Cup. And um, as it was building uh, these beautiful structures, really dazzling stadia, as anyone can see who looks at the photos, um, they, uh, they, they attracted a lot of human rights attention, human rights organizations' attention, and labor organization attention. And um, those organizations were reporting really abysmal uh, conditions. Um, it, everything from wage theft to forced overtime to abysmal living conditions to injury and death. Um, as, as a result of these reports, the international press started writing uh, stories and covering the labor conditions in Qatar, running headlines that said, World Cup slaves, comparing the conditions of work in Qatar to slavery. One of the reasons that that comparison was made was that um, workers in Qatar were working under something called a kafela system, which is a sponsorship system, uh, in which workers were sponsored by their employers and could only be in the country under that sponsorship relationship. And this sponsorship relationship formally bounded workers to their employers. So workers had no right to quit their job for any reason. They also could not leave the country without their employer's permission. So it was setting up situations where workers who hadn't been paid for months, who were living in terrible conditions, who were suffering uh, labor abuses on the work site, subject to dangerous conditions, could not quit their jobs, could not leave the country, were bound to their employer. And that is where the term World Cup slaves came from. We have to take a short break. Can you stick around? Sure. I know Good. What I dare we'll be right back. Me, Tigger, T-I-Double-G-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, NYU Professor Natasha Iskander, uh, talking about Qatar and the uh, World Cup uh, soccer tournament coming up there later this year. And uh, Natasha, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to. I'm happy to be able to share some of this work. Thank you for having me. Um, I, and we were talking before in the in the last segment, um, just before the break, about the the term World Cup slaves. And I wanted to to point out um, that this is the first time uh, a Middle Eastern country has hosted the FIFA World Cup. Um, in, in Qatar, and to live up to its slogan, Expect Amazing, Qatar invested, uh, as you pointed out in the last segment, hundreds of billions into new development infrastructure for stadia and so on, and then recruited more than a million migrants from over 90 countries from South Asia, the Middle East, and Sub-Saharan Africa to do the work. Um, if they didn't have infrastructure and and a labor force to pull this off how did qatar get through the the vetting to become a host Uh, for a lot of people in the u.s natasha as you well know they don't understand how big the world cup soccer event is yeah, it's a huge event. It's like I would say that it, you know, it's a close second to the Olympics, um, and it and it is an event that is uh, one that drums up a lot of enthusiasm around the world. But it's also a huge money maker for uh, broadcasters, advertisers, um, and uh, it's a it's a really important event to lift the profile of the host. In fact. The U.S., Mexico, and Canada will be hosting the 2026 World Cup. But um, your question about how did Qatar win this World Cup hosting rights um, is a really interesting and important one, and it's been a really controversial question, in fact. Um, Qatar was seen as kind of the dark horse in this race. They put together an amazing bid, right? Their slogan, Expect Amazing, started right right from their bid, and they certainly had the funds to um, carry out the, the building promises, the stadia promises, and the uh, community building around the community of soccer worldwide that they promised in their bid. Um, but there was quite a lot of controversy around the fact that they won this World Cup hosting right. Uh, when they did not yet have the infrastructure. In fact, um, the Washington Post reports that when uh, the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, uh, President Clinton, who had been at uh, the award ceremony and had pushed very hard for the U.S. to get those hosting rights, went back to his hotel room and smashed a mirror in anger. Um, right, that it, it really was very controversial, but Qatar was keen on hosting these games because it's part of its strategy to position itself as a global destination for sports and culture. It is part of its um, ambition to position itself as not just a leader in you know, natural gas extraction, but also a leader for a destination, a tourist destination, a destination 
for luxury uh, living, a destination for culture, uh, a destination even for um, higher education. Um, so this was definitely part of its strategy to reinvent itself, and it was very ambitious in that project. Well, again, talking about the scope and size of an event like this, um, it, it's... It, something that goes on in cities all over the country i mean it just it isn't just in 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 one place i remember a few years ago uh having someone from the mott foundation uh in the johannesburg office when south africa was hosting the uh world cup and yeah they were talking about stadiums in different cities all over the country and travel arrangements getting from one city to another to see certain matchups and so on and and I don't think people in the states really quite grasp how big an undertaking this is and how is it possible that you just um when you're doing an event of this size how, how do you pull it off just rounding up the usual suspects well, it's, a, it's an, an incredible achievement that they managed to do it. In fact, one of their uh, selling points for the bid was that they would build all the stadia in close proximity so that you wouldn't have to travel from one city to another to watch the games. Um, and, uh, and that's a big deal. Pardon? That's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And, in fact, one of the things that they also promised that they weren't able to uh, follow through on was that the stadiums would have uh, an air conditioning system that would, uh, would allow them to be open air and air conditioned at the same time because, as you may know, Qatar is extremely hot and humid in the summer. Um, it really breaks world records, and it's one of the fastest warming places on the planet. And typically, the World Cup is held in the summer months, but because it was so hot, it is so hot in Qatar in the summer, um, it would have been dangerous for uh, the players and for the audience to actually uh, watch the players play in this heat. So they moved the cup to uh, November, December, uh, where when the weather is more temperate. Um, and this was a source of quite a lot of controversy. But the important thing for me uh, to, to note here about the weather is that the workers building these structures worked all through these intense summer months, and many of them suffered heat injury and heat stroke doing so. Um, I, I want to get back to something I, I brought up in the last segment, and one of the things that you explore in uh, in your book, again, for listeners, my guest is NYU professor Natasha Iskander, and the book is um, called Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. Um, Natasha, that you explore the politics of skill classifications in the book. How is that different from other caste type systems that we've seen in the Middle East? Sure, uh, that's a great question. So let me just set the stage so that I can explain this. Um, you know, these stadia, as you can imagine, uh, were 
extremely difficult to build. They required advanced construction technology that was really at the global cutting edge. Uh, the designs and the engineering were uh, extremely daring, uh, very complex, highly uh, sophisticated, and yet the workers who were recruited to, to build these structures Natasha, um, I, hate to, I hate to interrupt, yeah. but I want to I want to um, peel that back a little bit about the uh, construction requirements because most of us are imagining, you know, a, a soccer field is just a plot of land and two goalposts. What is so yeah. complicated about this stadia that that makes it necessary to be global cutting edge? Right. So part of the expect amazing story was to hire star architects to build stadia unlike anything we had ever seen before. And in fact, they are stunning. Um, I would recommend to your listeners that they just Google Qatar World Cup stadia and they will see structures that are amazing. But in addition to the stadia, uh, Qatar also built a host of tourist infrastructure, including um, a beautiful metro, um, stunning buildings uh, for hotels, museums that are just daring in their structure. I mean, some of the most interesting and most um, um, just uh, risk-taking architecture is now located in Doha. It's really incredible to see artificial islands with luxury developments. I mean, uh, these are really sophisticated construction uh, challenges. And the workers who were recruited to build these structures had minimal construction experience, if any, and certainly nothing like they needed to build these structures. Um, you know, the, the structures routinely in the construction process broke world, world records, the highest scaffolding structure, the most uh, daring minaret, the most uh, curved and intricate uh, uh, towers, really, really sophisticated. And so what happened was that construction companies had to double as training systems. Every single process on site was uh, an apprenticeship process. Um, there was intensive learning. And managers and supervisors were really uh, detailed in their design of these training and learning processes, so much so that they would check how much their workers had learned like three or four times a day. And so they knew exactly how skilled their workers were, and they knew that their workers had, were very quickly achieving the skills to put them at the cutting edge. And yet when I talked to them and asked them about their workers, they routinely described them as unskilled. So it became clear to me that they were talking about something other than actual ability, because they knew how skilled their workers were. And as I started to explore it, it became very clear to me that labeling workers as unskilled was a way to justify the exploitation of their workforce. Um, and in particular, um, labeling someone unskilled means that you are denying their learning. And learning is actually an expression of freedom. You can compel someone to do something, but you can't compel someone to learn. Learning is an act of desire, volition. It's an intimate act. It's an act that requires social connection and trust. You can't force someone to learn. And so by denying 
that their workers were learning. They were essentially saying workers do not have the capacity for uh, agentic action, for will, for imagination, for desire, for uh, autonomy, and therefore justifying really poor treatment of their workers, treating them actually like bodies rather than people. Um, and this is where the politics of skill really play out. And in Qatar, it played out at the construction site, but it played out throughout society. Workers were segregated from uh, the rest of the city. They were uh, lodged in an area zoned for industrial use outside of the city, prohibited from entering uh, the city itself, and uh, treated, uh, t confined to, to living situations that were um, highly securitized and monitored, but also, in many cases, really abysmal, um, without proper air conditioning, without proper sanitation, and without proper uh, food and cooking facilities. How many skill classifications are there, and, and how did classifying uh, skill sets uh, become so political? Right, so in Qatar, there are essentially two categories, skilled and unskilled, um, as a matter of policy. Uh, so uh, Qatar, for example, as I mentioned, segregates, quote-unquote, unskilled workers from the city, and they, the government actually publishes color-coded maps indicating where unskilled workers can live and indicating the areas that they are not permitted to enter. Right, so the, these two categories were uh, codified in policy. But I think what's interesting about Qatar, you know, in, in a way it's this country of extremes and it helps us see things that are true even beyond Qatar. Um, well, I, I was going to ask, it, yeah. it seems like those two classifications, skilled and unskilled, you know, have have been in existence in factories throughout the United States for a hundred uh, years. That's exactly right. And and that's I would exactly think right. and and I would think that there's certainly no shortage of politics in other countries with regard to various classifications of people. Um, so what what's different about Qatar? Well I would actually say that Qatar is uh, not so different, in fact. Um, we use in, in all of our economies these categories of unskilled and skilled. You know, we all understand that there are various gradations. Uh, you know, someone can be in the process of learning something and they're not yet a full expert, but they're on their way. But in the way that we organize our societies, we really divide things up into skilled and unskilled. Um, in ways that are really powerful. And the reason it's so such a powerful divide is that skill looks like it's really neutral. It looks like a technical matter. It looks like something that is not debatable. But in fact, not only do we uh, express bias and power structures and the ways that we assess skill, but once we decide that someone is unskilled, our societies uh, reserve a kind of treatment for people described as unskilled that is um, less free, less dignified, less fair, 
um, and more degrading than the kind of treatment that we reserve for people that we decide are skilled. One of the things that you point out is that um, a lot of um, migrants have been attracted to the money to be made and the fact that there's work to be done from throughout the region and and other countries even around the world. Um, what happens to these people after the World Cup has yeah, that's completed. a really good question. Um, you know, Qatar has clear plans to deport uh, many workers to reduce its migrant labor force after this construction push is over. Um, Will it be different for skilled versus unskilled? Yes, they are. They are. Uh, their plans are to build a knowledge economy, so they hope to retain the skilled workers, and uh, reduce the number of unskilled, again, using using these kind of political labels rather than actual ability, uh, reducing the number of unskilled workers in the country. I, I don't actually think that that's uh, very probable. I mean, you know, the workers that they label as unskilled are critical to the functioning of the economy. Everything from uh, care work to service work to construction work, which won't end after the end of the World Cup. Um, and so, but what is interesting is to me about this question of what happens to workers when they return home is that the workers who are recruited in Qatar don't stay for very long. They are in Qatar for two, four, six years, and then they return back to their countries of origin. And um, depending on the kinds of jobs that they have, the costs to them personally are, are pretty high. Um, the first thing to note is that while the wages may look attractive, uh, once you do uh, the calculation, they're actually not very high. They're not very high kind of in an absolute sense. It's the, the average wage is about $300 a month. But more importantly, workers pay really high recruitment fees, uh, so high, in fact, that it takes them about a year on a two-year contract to pay them off. So the recruitment fees range from you know, $700 to $3,500. Most of these recruitment fees are not legal. It doesn't mean that they aren't charged. Um, and then when workers come back, they come back to labor markets where their opportunities uh, are few. They return to spaces where the kind of construction that they were doing uh, in Qatar is not happening. Um, and more importantly, many of them return with bodies that have been ravaged by heat. So in countries that send many workers to Qatar, countries like Nepal, what you're seeing is the opening of nephratic wings in hospitals for workers who return home with damaged kidneys because of the heat, um, or you know, a higher incidence than normal of young men returning and at 35 having heart attacks because their hearts were damaged by extreme heat. Um, there is no way to overstate the hazard of working in the kind of heat conditions that Qatar asks people to work in. And in fact, when I asked workers about what was the most difficult part of their jobs, uh, they all uniformly described 
heat as being the most challenging, the most uh, oppressive, and the most dangerous part of their jobs. Natasha, I always ask uh, authors of books this question, and, and of course the obvious answer is everybody, but is there an audience out there that you're especially hoping will read this book, and what are you hoping they will get out of it? Well, the answer to your question about audience is hopefully everybody, but certainly anyone who's interested in watching the World Cup or who's interested in uh, labor politics as they apply to uh, migrant workers around the world. Um, what I hope people will learn or get from reading this book is that when they watch the World Cup, they will, as they watch the beautiful game and see the beautiful stadia, remember the workers who uh, applied their energy, their effort, their uh, deep motivation, um, and who endured very difficult conditions to build these amazing structures to host, to hold the beautiful game. Um, and, you know, I, when I look at these structures, to me, they represent thousands upon thousands of moments of imagination, of volition, of uh, creativity and solidarity on the parts of workers. And I, I hope to, to encourage people to, to view those structures in that way. Um, and, and also, hopefully, uh, to create a bridge so that the, the conversations about labor rights that began in Qatar can continue to follow the World Cup around, and that when we host the World Cup in this country, we can continue those conversations about labor rights, which apply just as uh, powerfully to our economy and to our society as they do to Qatar. Well, Natasha, um, I, I can't believe how fast the time has gone, and, and we're pretty much out of time. The name of the book is uh, Does Skill Make Us Human Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond by NYU professor Natasha Iskander. And Natasha, I always want uh, to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I have a website that is currently under construction, so be, they can go to the NYU website for me. They can just Google my name. You'd or be they surprised can look how often. You'd be surprised how often I hear that <laughs> about websites. Yeah, true. Um, people should also feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. It's at Natasha Iskander, and I'm happy to point them uh, toward more information about the World Cup, more information about skill and its politics, or anything else they feel like chatting about. Well, Natasha, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Bye. Bye. Again, that was uh, NYU uh, professor Natasha Iskander. She is associate professor of urban planning and public policy at New York University's Wagner School of Public Service and the author of a new book called Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Guitar and uh, beyond, uh, looking at um, the development there uh, surrounding uh, this year's FIFA World Cup event. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back, and we're going to pay a little tribute to um, Betty White, 
who would be turning 100 today had she not passed away about two and a half weeks ago. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flip Flip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, as uh, promised, we are going to uh, turn our attention to Betty White, who um, <laughs> had, had had this whole big comeback in, in recent years, uh, largely because of a Super Bowl ad and um, her appearance as uh, the oldest host ever on Saturday Night Live, um, resulting from a Facebook campaign. And uh, she passed away New Year's Eve, um, just shy of uh, today, which would have been her 100th birthday. And uh, she was born in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, 100 years ago today. And although best known as the devious Sue Ann Nivens of the classic sitcom The Mary Tyler Moore Show in 1970 and the ditzy Rose Nyland on The Golden Girls in 1985, she'd been in television for a long, long time before those two shows. She had her own series, Life with Elizabeth, in 1952. And uh, she was... um, the widow of a TV game show host Alan Ludden. She uh, was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame and is known for her tireless efforts on behalf of animals. Several events were planned in honor of her 100th uh, birthday. In fact, there's a documentary film that was going to be released today. It is playing in select theaters today only in honor of her 100th birthday. Would have been a little different if she'd have been here for it, but uh, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and find it and get out and see it this afternoon. In the meantime, I uh, gathered up a collection of uh, bits and pieces um, from, from YouTube of uh, Betty White uh, in showing off her wit and wisdom in game shows and... and um, Oh, talk show interviews and and bits and pieces of scenes. Um, there, I don't think there's ever been a time where there was television and Betty White wasn't on there somewhere. So, Betty White up next. Get me a cup of coffee. No, my name's Ryan. We've 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 been working together for weeks, months actually. Months now. Dan, you've been a terrible assistant that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I'm not an assistant, Betty. I don't. I mean, I play an assistant in the movie, and I'm an actor in real life. And you should, you should, you should know when that. When Betty White says she wants a cup of coffee, you get her a, a cup of coffee. You ab crunching jackass. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Sliced bread. Sliced bread. Could you buy sliced bread when Betty White was born? What do you think? 
I mean, I assume sliced bread been around for a long time. Mm. But so has Betty White. <laughs> <laughs> I am so honored and so, so thrilled and so scared. Are that, you? Yes. And, and for the Screen Actors Guild, SAG is the, is the you know, it's your peers. Mm-hmm. I wish they wouldn't call it SAG. <laughs> I wish they wouldn't call it SAG. <laughs> At 90 years old, I was not expecting this. Let's right. put it that way. Just the way things have gone the last couple of years has been just fantastic. That's right. So I'm going to start lying about my age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 45. You're 45. <laughs> Whoa. Is that really Betty White with six black men? But what I'm going to ask Betty is, do you think that Tiger's wife, Elon, should take him back? Well, all I know, the only, my only claim to fame, I'm the only woman in the world who has not slept with Tiger. Oh! <laughs> and, uh, but no, John likes to do all his communicating via carrier pigeon. <laughs> carrier pigeon. Does that work? Oh, absolutely. Although... Lately, we've been having a problem with Sarah Palin shooting them down. That is one crazy bitch. So we're going to play a little match game right here. I'm going to ask some questions. You fill in the blank, okay? Okay. Okay, here we go. The Real Housewives should be called blank. The Neighborhood Hookers. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. All those years that I had no idea I'd still be working through is so much thanks to you and your mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. And a couple of great-grandfathers when I was younger. Well, I've been around the block, okay? I mean, I've seen a lot of things, and I've done one or two, and uh, I know a few things. Not much, but some. (laughs) You get it? I just saw the most anticipated movie of the year, Deadpool. It was glorious. Once in a generation, a movie comes along that your whole family will love. If your family is a up group of kissing inbreds. Plus, Ryan Reynolds looks so f***ing handsome in his red leather suit. I give it four Golden Girls. How do you stay so vital? I eat my favorite, I'm a health nut. My favorite food is hot dogs with French fries. <laughs> and I, my exercise, I have a two-story house and a very bad memory, so I'm up and down those stairs. Is there something, is there one thing out there that Betty White still wants to do? 
Mr. Robert Redford. <laughs> you are more popular and more successful, and you're working harder now than I think I've ever seen you work. Oh, isn't that how and lucky? You've can always worked. You, you work. You work hard. You're in every movie. Well, I'm such a, I'm such a whore. I can't say no. To you. <laughs> I love children. The only problem with children, they grow up to be people. And I just like animals better than people. It's that simple. Right? So you're like, you know, he's like, okay, that's something I can grab onto. That's one little tiny hook. Something. Something. So I just started off and I, for some reason, I felt William Shatner come over me. Right. Which happens. Oh, I wish I could time. say If someone... <laughs> yeah. You made the cover of Men's Health in the UK, which, uh, and it's a very, look at that, build arms like this. Whoa. Fantastic <laughs> cover. <laughs> Are you okay, Betty? I'm, I'm getting better. <laughs> what, do you, what do you like to do in your free time? Oh, I like to, I like to do most anything, play with animals mostly. And uh, vodka's kind of a hobby. And, uh, <laughs> What do you think about the state of our country and how divided it seems to be? It's very divided, and we're not in the best place we've ever been. But I think that's the time to buckle down and really work positively as much as you can instead of just saying, oh, this is terrible, oh, he's terrible. Oh, just think, all right, there's nothing I can do about that right now, but I can do the best in my little circle. So if I do that, maybe you'll do your best, and, and we'll get through this. The category of Betty White Tips for Living a Long and Happy Life. Here we go, number 10. Get at least eight hours of beauty sleep. Nine if you're ugly. Ah, doesn't hurt to go that extra hour. Uh, number nine. Exercise. Or don't, what the hell do I care? <laughs> didn't make it either. You didn't have a dog in this fight. Uh, number eight. Never apologize. It shows weakness. That's right. Number seven. The best way to earn a quick buck is a slip and fall lawsuit. <laughs> uh, number six. Avoid tweeting any photos of your private parts. Uh, number six. Number five. Schedule a nightly appointment with Dr. Johnny Walker. Yeah, yeah, buddy. Number four. Take some wheatgrass, soy paste, and carob. Toss in the garbage and cook yourself a big-ass piece of pork. Number three. Try not to die. Exactly. <laughs> Number two. Never dwell on past mistakes. Especially you, LeBron. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
And the number one Betty White tip for living a long and happy life. Don't waste your time watching this crap. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.